As I record this, we are in the midst of a global health crisis. It's touching all of our lives. And though the event is giving rise to a lot of anxiety and fear, it also serves to remind us how connected and reliant we are on each other. Though I've never experienced anything like this in my lifetime, I think about other moments in my life that left me feeling sad, fearful, anxious, and even angry. During such times, I was tempted to allow those feelings to overwhelm me and convince me that there were more reasons to be fearful than to be hopeful. This collective fear and anxiety that we're feeling of what the future may bring in the coming days, weeks, and months can and does bring up the worst in some people. They believe in only the worst of outcomes, which helps them to justify their choices and their behavior. I choose to believe that like many difficult and challenging moments in human history, we will move through and past this. It may not be free of pain, sorrow, and grief, but we can look forward to days that will again be filled with love, joy, and compassion. But rather than wait for that day, I want to see today as an opportunity to be grateful for what I do have and to reach out to people I love and am concerned about. To just check in and see that they're okay. It's important because when I'm feeling such fear and insecurity, I need to be reminded that I'm not alone in these feelings. And when I admit as much, I can be helpful to someone else. I never need to be alone during such dark times, and neither should you. As you'll hear in this episode with Ben Smith, who is the host and producer of A Small Voice Photography Podcast, we share a lot in common beyond our love for photography and podcasting. We have shared experiences of fear, self-doubt, and insecurity. Yet each of us, in our own ways, have found a way to create things that we are proud of, and have become invaluable to thousands of people all over the world, even though we may likely never know their names. As imperfect and as flawed as I am, I can still be a force for good in someone else's life today, and so can you. So pick up the phone and reach out to someone you care about, especially if you haven't talked to them in a while, and let them know that despite it all, you're thinking of them. Step away from the Twitter feed, the Facebook posts, and 24-hour news cycle, and just take time to say hello. They'll appreciate it, and most importantly, it will serve as a simple and powerful way to keep the light from being extinguished by the darkness. Take care of yourselves, and take care of each other. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. How long have you been doing the show now? Four years or more? Uh, four and a half years. Yeah, I started it September 2015. So it'll be five years this September. So four and a half. Well, congrats. You know, well, being thank able you. To last, even, that, even that long is, is quite an accomplishment. I mean, being able to last more yeah. than a year in this game is, is, a, is a seminal point. Well, I'm obviously, you know, I'm very far behind you, but um, yes, I think it's partly about just having the kind of commitment to, to, to carry on regardless, really, as much as you can, which, you know, I think is a pretty useful way to 
live in general and probably applies to all kinds of things but it certainly applies to doing the podcast yeah i think what probably happens is people very quickly realize how much work it is and they weren't really bargaining on that and they very quickly come to the conclusion that they they just can't commit that amount of time or they don't particularly have enough motivation to to carry on i suspect that's what happens in a lot of cases anyway Oh, yeah. I think there's, I was just uh, talking to someone else about blogging a couple of years ago. That was the big thing. And so a lot of people started blogs, you know, thinking that they would garner them attention and would be a launching pad to something else. And they realized, oh, if I'm going to write a blog every three days or every day, uh, that's a lot of work. (laughs) And quickly figured out, you know, and and I think the reason you go into into something is really a, a big factor in that. And if you go in for the wrong reasons, it's hard to maintain the momentum over weeks, months, and years, and to be able to do it consistently. Yeah. It's really about kind of what are your expectations, you know, coming in? Like, uh, you know, clearly you'd have to be certifiably insane to get into (laughs) podcasting uh, on the grounds that there might be some income in it, for instance. So anyone who who does that is going to be very quickly, you know, disabused of their ideas. But I think if you go in with no expectation other than, you know, you'll kind of get out of it, whatever you put in, then that's, that's probably the way, the way to kind of approach it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I, what's amazing about your story is how much alike we are. Yeah, I know. Not, I know. It's not crazy. only considering that we both do the same type of podcast, but that our personal history is kind of like really analogous. And it was just like, wow, man, it's like a mirror except with an accent. It really, really is. I know, exactly. <laughs> Apart from those obvious differences in terms of, our, you know, the culture, uh, you know, and the, the, the places that we grew up in and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, mm. it's amazing. The episode that you did with Jamie on, on mm-hmm. your own podcast where you were uh, for once uh, – were actually the sort of uh, subject rather than the interviewer. And, um, yeah, I was just amazing how many little kind of checkboxes were ticking in my head as you talked, really, to the point where it was quite spooky. Like you talked about how you taught yourself to type when you were a kid, right? And I remember, <laughs> and I think, you know, I did exactly the same thing, exactly the same thing. And I was like, that's that's kind of a very particular thing, isn't it? Like that's kind of weird, really, in a way, that we're, we have these little – strange things in common yeah i was i was listening to the episode where you were uh, being interviewed and i forget the, the young lady who was interviewing you yeah abby trailer smith okay yeah it was fascinating like how you had that meltdown i think in uh, high school yeah which was completely the same thing that happened to me mm. now i kind of understand what was happening during that time it was like i was you know i was suffering from depression and undiagnosed depression at, at that time and because i wasn't talking to anybody i just kind of you know completely petered out in my senior year in in high school just mm. was completely lost uh for 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 a couple of years after that yeah i mean uh, you know it's really kind of interesting how we found ourselves in through um writing and and the photography that that seemed to have been you know the life preserver that we both needed to be able to you know move forward in life if even if it was sort of you know with a lot of missteps and <laughs> you know uh, no, absolutely. A, a lot of yeah. decisions that were ideal. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's some kind of correlation between you know having kind of a creative uh, personality and um, 
and being sensitive uh, in some way and therefore, you know, liable to have the kind of uh, experiences we had. I mean, certainly yeah, I had a lot of challenges with depression and um and uh self-esteem and all that kind of stuff yeah certainly certainly when i was young it was it was just i did i didn't even have um uh, i can't even claim to have had any kind of a dramatic meltdown really which you know would be a better story it's it's much more mundane than that it was kind of a long continuous kind of low level meltdown really my, my entire mm-hmm. kind of formative experience but yeah and then you uh, I think you can seek comfort and uh, solace in, um, you know, creative pursuits. As you say, yeah, writing and photography quite often provide that. Yeah, and I think what was really kind of interesting about both of our experiences, and I thought it would be really helpful for people to, to, to hear about it, is just the fact that even though you are going through those moments of, you know, depression, whether it's clinical or not, and self-doubt, anxiety, uh, insecurity, that we both managed to move forward in an area that we had a passion and an interest for. And I think so many people don't even get that far because despite the fact that, you know, we were struggling with that stuff and we sometimes, you know, or oftentimes have regretted our choices, we were nevertheless both sort of making progress in the areas in which we wanted to, right? where other people don't even Hmm. get that far. They allow the voices in their head and the feelings that they're having to completely stop them. And they just simply give up and they, and they, you know, take on something else that's safer and doesn't involve as as much risk or what they conceive as risk. And it was really interesting hearing your story that um, how analogous that was to you and me, because I can certainly look back and, and think that, Oh, if I'd done this, if I could done that, I could have gotten so much further but, you know, I think I too easily discounted the fact that I was nevertheless making some sort of progress and that I was still staying on point, even though I was, you know, my road, if I had outlined it, was incredibly zigzaggy. Yeah. But I think I, I was sort of mistaken in the idea that there was a straight line to be had in the first place. Mm. I mean, I see, I feel like I've been very sort of two steps forward, one step back, really, the whole time you know, that your progress is going to be relatively slow if that's the case, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. if you're comparing yourself to people who confidently march forward, you know, having had the benefit of, um, I don't know, supportive parents and uh, a good education and and all those other um, factors. And then there are those of us who just find it much more of a challenge, really. And, you know, that's often about whatever you're telling yourself in your head about who you are and what you are, unfortunately, you know, so much of it is down to that. I mean, we could, yeah, we could talk forever about it, but um, I definitely feel like I got into photography relatively late. I was 30. So my whole t- of my twenties, really, I kind of slept walked through that mm-hmm. uh, in a state of kind of, I, I don't even know a kind of inertia really and a kind of low level unhappiness and also a, quite a lot of depression, which I'd had really since I was a kid, but I had a lovely girlfriend throughout that whole period. So life kind of seemed, you know, on the face of it, reasonably okay. And obviously you can get away with not having any money when you're young, which, you know, starts to um, become a bit less uh, rock and roll by the time you get to a certain point. But yeah, photography came along Although I'd had an interest in it as a kid, it it didn't 
resurface in my life until I was, like I say, at the end, tail end of my thirties. And yeah, I guess I have, I did manage to kind of make progress, as I say, albeit in a very kind of dysfunctional and, uh, like you say, zigzaggy way. And you were spending most of that, that, that time in your twenties writing rather than photography, right? Initially, yeah, that's how I got I got into photography from writing. I always wanted to be a writer from even when I was a kid. So it was almost like when I was at school, I was the kid who knew what they wanted to do at a ridiculously early age, which you know was I guess was quite notable because not many kids really have have got a strong idea at that point. And so I guess, you know, all my teachers thought, oh, well, there you go. Then Ben's going to go and be a newspaper guy. You know, that's that was always what I wanted to do. And then I kind of just imploded, really. <laughs> no one was really, you know, no one, because everyone thought, because I was like relatively a smart kid, you know, and perfectly capable, um, I think people thought, right, he's okay. We don't need to worry about him over there. Let's focus on the people who need a bit more attention. And kind of, actually, I wasn't okay at all, really, you know, kind of emotionally and, and psychologically. So, yeah, it all kind of fell apart, really. It took me a while to get back on an even keel. I mean, I, I sort of had to retake a lot of exams, which, got, which I failed the first time. And, you know, I ultimately got myself back to college to do a degree as a kind of way of saving myself, really. I mean, that's it. It's just a, basically, Baronex, it's one story of, of managing to save myself from oblivion after another, really. And uh, they'll, that, will, that pattern may well continue for the, for the foreseeable future. I don't know. Well, I completely get that. And I think for me personally, for whatever reason, early in my childhood, I kind of learned that I had to fend for myself, that there was no one I could really turn to to ask for help, even my, my parents. But I think part of it all was also that I felt that if I opened up and I said that I didn't know how to do something or um, or if I needed help, that that opened me up to being vulnerable mm-hmm. and hurt, uh, you know, by my peers or something like that, you know. And so I think for the most part, for the great majority of my life, I always was saw myself as the kind of person that, like, you can't ask for help. You just have to figure it out yourself. And I'm wondering how your experience reflects that mentality, mentality of it all. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, I don't know. I think I probably would have asked for help if I had known who to ask. I didn't have anyone to ask, really. It might not have occurred to me. Uh, I'm not sure I even realized I needed help. I, You know, it's that whole thing of, mm, you know, yeah. your experience at that age is just what is normal to you. If I'd been aware of just how much I needed help, I might have, you know, sought out some kind of mentor, you know, some kind of uh, person who could take me under their wing. What I kind of wish is that I'd come to the realization, as I think you just said that you did, that these people around you, these uh, adults, they're, they're, they're no use to you. They're not going to, they're not going to help here. They're not, they cannot be of any practical help in terms of what you need. But, you know, you don't know how to say that when you're 16 years old or something. Yeah. So I just, a bit like you, I think I just kind of created a, a kind of armor plating or what I would have hoped was an armor plating against all the kind of, trials and tribulations that I was having at that time. But, you know, I think there, there may have been one or two people who could have 
provided that role. But like I say, it didn't occur to me to uh, ask anyone. Certainly all of my teachers were next to useless and my parents, bless them, also were, were not, you know, really up to that particular job for me personally. And I mean, I've got, you know, I've got siblings who may well have a very different story, but I think, you know, we're all different and we're all in need of, of different things uh, when we're that age, especially. And I think that's one of the problems, you know, it's not a, a one size fits all thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of it for me was just this idea that I saw other people being able to do things so easily that I had difficulty doing. Mm. You know, it was only until recently that I realized why that was, you know, when I got di- diagnosed with major depressive di- disorder and ADHD, it's like, oh, that's why. And, uh, mm. you know, had I had that understanding back then, I don't think I would have struggled as much and I would not have been as harsh on myself as I was for, for the bulk of my life because I, I couldn't understand why I couldn't do what seemed to be the simplest, um, the simplest things that everyone else was able to do. And so that sort of, mm. that harsh voice in my head was really probably the, the biggest boogeyman in my, in my life that was always you know, expecting me to be a certain way when, because of my chemistry, just I wasn't capable of being and only in, in understanding what was going on and accepting that that's just the way I am and not having a bad judgment about it, have I been free to be to be able to enjoy who I am and how I am. Yeah. And, you know, I don't even know at that point, you know, was ADHD a kind of available condition as it were, you know, had they even really started diagnosing it? It's extraordinary that you could, and I know this is probably more common an experience than we might think, but for you to have got so far through your life before you got diagnosed with that, you know, is pretty amazing. And, and the idea that you might have got diagnosed so long ago that, you know, it would have had a really serious, as you say, impact on how you then, you know, viewed yourself. Because mm-hmm. this tendency that we have to just blame ourselves for everything, you know, you look around, you, you think all of the kind of available adults, they must know more than you do because they're adults and you're just a kid. So, if there's some problem, it must be your fault. It must be something you're not doing right. And it's brutal because we are brutal to ourselves in those circumstances sometimes, you know, rather than having some compassion for ourselves. I don't know. I hope, I hope it's less common in this day and age for, for young people to, to, you know, have to sort of have those feelings really. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things about your your story is how in your career as a photographer and, and a writer that you lamented that you didn't really leverage some opportunities that were presented to you and, you know, that you just mm. didn't take, you know, you got a ball, but you didn't run with it. And I know that that was something that yeah. you shared that you had some regrets over. What was really interesting, though, was when you shared those two uh, audio notes that you made about what you wanted the podcast to be. And mm. I heard that. Uh, a, a sort of you're very, very determined yeah. to see it through that regardless of what it might look like in terms of quote unquote success that you were just going to see it through that you weren't going to allow anything even your own self-doubts to keep you from pushing through and making this thing happen 
And that was really fascinating to, to hear because that was completely the same experience that I had, though I wasn't as conscious of it at the very beginning. But it certainly came up during the early years of, of the show where I was just like, I, I, I can't give up doing this. I didn't know why. I just mm. knew that I just couldn't give it up. And I'm just curious as to why at that particular moment in time you were so focused on on seeing this thing through and not just dropping the ball and moving on to something else. I, mean, I think that's the, the million-dollar question. And I, and I think the answer is that at that point I had finally resolved to learn my lesson, I think. And it was, I felt like my last kind of chance I think they call it a Hail Mary pass, don't they, uh, in the States, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which I only uh, I only learned the kind of origins of that saying quite recently. Because it's obviously, it's uh, as your listeners on that side of the pond will know, it's an American football thing. But I, I just, I had finally kind of understood a few fundamental lessons about how to be in the world. And, you know, one of them was about just carrying on really and not letting that voice in my head which is very self-critical you know stop me from doing what I knew in my heart of hearts I should at least give a good a good go at and so it was it was it's almost like um it gets boring after a while repeating the same mistakes over and over again and and not learning your lesson I mean there's a sort of a bit of a fetish, I think, for failure uh, at the moment. We're talking about failure because, as we all know, it's it's kind of a necessity quite often. But that's not to say it's somehow a good thing. You know, you, you've got to take it as something that you know you need to get past. Because if you just c- continue endlessly to to make the same mistakes over and over again, you're not going to make any progress. So I think that determination that you that you heard was just a result of me going, look you're 50 years old or whatever (laughs) and there really isn't that much time left to keep repeating these same patterns I suppose is is the word patterns of of behavior and patterns of self-doubt and patterns of making the same fundamental mistakes over and over again so it was a kind of determination to to test the thesis in a way that I had kind of come to understand was almost certainly true which is that the only real difference between those people who manage to become successful in one way or another or just do something successfully and those who don't is that is that little bit of of commitment to to see it through and when did you feel during the life of your show that that you had done that i mean i said to myself i kind of gave myself an out even despite what i've just said i didn't want to put so much pressure on myself that that in it in itself would be self defeating so I said I'm going to do 50 episodes and that is an absolute commitment I will do 50 but if I get to 50 and I've just hated it and it's just you know sucks and I'm not enjoying it in the way that I hoped I would or basically if everything about it is just not what you know what I wanted then then I have permission to quit but I had to do 50 episodes so I think long before I got to 50 I realized that that wasn't going to happen and that it was something that was bringing a lot of positivity to my life and something that I was enjoying doing. And I think that feeling probably kicked in after a very small number, you know, maybe 10 or 15 episodes. 
and I realized there was something to it and that people had already started, albeit in very small numbers, to discover it, you know, and to express their appreciation of it. And I think, you know, when you get a little bit of positive feedback, it goes a hell of a long way. When you're someone who is used to being incredibly self-critical, you know, if you get that little bit of encouragement from people, uh, then that that will really carry you through. And that's, that's you know, continues to be the case in a way. Did you feel at, at some point that, oh, I'm really good at this? Oh, God, no. Let's not get carried no. away, Baronix. Seriously? <laughs> oh, my God. I'm no, I mean. <clears throat> sir, sir, you're, you're good at what you do. I mean, uh, in our small little genre that we have, you're my favorite interviewer. You know, in terms of people oh, who are photographers, you are. You are because you do everything I, that I, I've learned that I've learned to do well, which is do the research, listen, and show a genuine enthusiasm. I think that, that those are the bottom yeah. three. And I think you have and you have all three of those. And it's one of the reasons I immediately loved your show when I discovered it and I started, you know, sharing it with other people. Because there are a lot of people who, you know, do interviews and may have a good voice, blah, 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 good, good audio engineer. But, you know, if you don't have those three things, it's really hard to hold my attention for, you know, a very long period of time and not get frustrated. Because, God, nothing frustrates mm -hmm. me more than a bad interview. But, no, you, I think you are really, right. really, really good. Thank you so much. I mean, I can't tell you how much that means to me hearing, hearing it from you because, you know, in a way you were my inspiration for doing it. Yeah, um, that, that's a simple fact. I don't, not to turn this into some kind of, kind of mutual, um, kind of appreciation society, but, but seriously though, I mean, I to this day still, when I listen to the way that you do an interview and the questions that you ask and the insight that you bring to those questions, I just go, you know, I do that whole, Ben, this, you're just not ever going to get close to this guy, you know, and, I, and I'm not just saying that. I'm, I'm really not. Like when, when Joel, you know, when Joel Mayovitz is saying, constantly telling you, you know, how incredibly awesome that question was, and I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, well, it was, and he's right, but also it's a bit like, ugh. So thank you for saying that. I People do tell me that they feel, think I'm good at it, and I do, you know, obviously have huge support from my listeners and, and, and a great deal of positive feedback. But I guess, you know, old habits die hard, don't they? And there I am with my old kind of slightly uh, self-flagellatory kind of reluctance to accept praise or accept, uh, you know, kind of, yeah, it's good things to being said. I just do my best. And as you say, those three things are absolutely really the only thing you need. Mm -hmm. I am genuinely fascinated by by other people and from hearing by hearing their stories. I do think it's profoundly important to prepare thoroughly because I think that that's in some ways just a matter of, you know, respect for your guest in a way that you've done that and that you're ready to go. And, um, and what was the third one? Uh, just being able to, to listen. Yeah, exactly. Just there you go. There and listen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause I really enjoyed your conversations like with Martin Parr. I thought that was a really fun, fun conversation and mm. it didn't feel you know, formal at all. And it seems like you guys were just bannering between each other, but it was so insightful uh, at the same time. And I have to admit my enviousness at, at, at you having interviewed him before I did. Mm. 
Well, thank you, thank you so much. It's it's funny you should sort of highlight that one of all of all of them because, I mean, a couple of things to say about that one. First of all, that is that is the most listened to episode of all, which is perhaps not surprising because he's, you know, probably the most high profile person in terms of his just his kind of you know how well known he is in the wider world. But I did, I I I didn't. Mm, I thought quite carefully about that one because I was having this whole conversation with myself about how I was going to approach it, you know, in the lead up to it. And, and, you know, man, this is Martin Parr. And, you know, he's been interviewed a million times. And I, in the end, I just said to myself, you know what, Ben, just do what you usually do. You know, don't treat him any differently mm-hmm. just because he's a bit more famous than, you know, the next guy. It's just another photographer. So that in a way is what I did. And then I, I ended up, I ended up thinking, oh, but maybe that wasn't enough because, you know, you do want to, at least try and come up with some questions they haven't had before. I'd love to hear you interview him, actually, I must admit. But it was fun, you know, and he's a he's a very playful bloke, Martin. He's, you know, he's not at all sort of standoffish or kind of unapproachable. He can, I, I guess he would seem that way before you've met him. But uh, he's, he's, a, he's a lot of fun. And, you know, we had that whole bit where he... Uh, he teased me relentlessly for not having it, uh, you know, he gave me a little quiz on his, uh, his photo books, uh, which I failed dismally because, you know, <laughs> there's a lot I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's, I, I, I'm not a big, I'm not, you know, the, the thing about it is that I, you know, I do the podcast as a kind of, um, you know, student of photography rather than some kind of, you know, self-professed expert. So, uh, yeah, he, uh, he um, had fun just um, torturing me with questions that I couldn't answer, but that was just a little um, added extra, which we were able to put in. But thank you for saying that. No, no. And I think one of the things that I've learned about the show that I think is, has had an impact on my photography. And I'm curious to hear if, if, if the same is for you is that I learned that the more myself that I am, the better I am as in terms of a podcaster, rather than sort of modeling myself and thinking that I have to sort of, you know, be something that I'm not. Um, and as I've mm-hmm. sort of applied that to my photography, I have found that my appreciation for what I'm doing has gotten better. Because I think that we both set a, a unreasonable high bar for the quality of all of our work that I think would uh, probably intimidate anybody. But mm-hmm. that, you know, we get to the point where oh, I'm just being myself that high bar and that unreasonable expectation sort of goes by the wayside. And I have a greater appreciation for what I'm doing, even if it, if it isn't to the standard that I would like it to be. And I'm wondering, you know, when it comes to your photography, whether you feel anything along those lines. It's such an important insight, you know, and I think that's, that's the big learning. And, you know, this is why I think that what we do here with this podcasting business is so valuable really to, to younger photographers and people who want to learn because you are getting the benefit of people's hard won wisdom here and you're getting it the easy way and you're getting it for free. Let's not forget, but we'll, we'll, you know, we'll pass over that fact for now, but what you're saying is fundamentally uh, critical. And I think we spend our, the beginning of our careers trying to figure out how to be us and inevitably you might initially mimic the people who you admire and you might try to be them for a while. And then the first crucial learning is to realize that 
you can only be you. You have to be you. And it's better if the you, if, you know, if you being you is not really quite up to scratch, that is way better than you trying to be someone else, you know, and maybe making a pretty good job of that. So it is absolutely, I agree with you. And ultimately that's the only way forward, isn't it? You have to do you. I did have that insight from doing the podcast and I have carried that over. So that's the other reason, you know, for doing it. You can, you can make these learnings and then apply them elsewhere. And, you know, when you were talking, you were talking about um, uh, on your show about a project you had been working on. And can you tell us a little bit about that? I certainly can. Yes. Well, it's ongoing um, and has been for a while. Um, so the project is a long-term personal project, basically about a particular borough in London. So it's a kind of portrait of, a, of the borough. Uh, it's a place called Tower Hamlets and... You know, it's a very typical borough in, in lots of ways. Um, people who know London will be aware of it. But in other ways, it's a bit of an outlier because, first of all, it's a very poor borough. So it's it's one of the most, you know, financially deprived parts of the country. And it always has been. And then right in the middle of it uh, sits this kind of uh, anomaly of a place, which is called... Uh, Canary Wharf and Canary Wharf is essentially the sort of second uh, financial district of London after the city of London itself, which is sometimes called the square mile. But uh, Canary Wharf was sort of created from scratch in a way back in the 80s on a big, big chunk of um, what was then pretty much sort of derelict waste ground uh, where the docks used to be by the River Thames and had to obviously the whole world, that whole part of the world had fallen into disrepair. So they created this place, which is essentially an office and shopping complex. And it struck me um, as, a, a, as a really interesting metaphor for, you know, the oldest story in the book, really, which is the sort of the, the, the discrepancy between the haves and the have nots, you know, in all, in all modern cities, really, you have that. Strangely, I mean, it was a kind of, for a long time, I ha- it was a title. I had a title in search of a project, really, because I wanted, I had this idea of a tale of two cities, which is obviously a Dickens novel. But mm-hmm. I thought of it in terms of living in, in, in a big city. Everyone comes across these amazing dichotomies, really. And, you know, for me, I thought maybe I go to the poorest borough in London, I'll go to the wealthiest borough in London, I'll shoot in both, and I will make a project, you know, which compares and contrasts. At some point it became apparent to me that I didn't even need to do that and that 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 same discrepancy could be found in the same borough. And that particular borough here in London happens to be Tower Hamlet. So that's the project really. It's about exploring some of those things, but it's also about, you know, just showing the cultural diversity of the place. It's a very kind of dynamic part of town. There's there's hugely uh, different populations all sort of forced together. There's a big Bangladeshi community. There's old school Cockney Londoners. You know, there's a, the odd uh, pocket of uh, of young hipsters. So, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of stuff to to kind of explore. But basically, I'm still doing it, and I was finding reasons to procrastinate over continuing with it because, yeah, I just. 
there's lots of things that I'm like unsure about in terms of how to get it finished really. And, um, that's the, that's the goal. So I, I think I'd, ideally I'd, I'd like to have an exhibition somewhere in the borough, which would, would be the most obvious thing for me. But ultimately, of course, there's also the possibility of getting a book made. So yeah, I hope I'll, next time I talk to you, I'll have something a little bit more kind of concrete to say about, um, it actually coming to fruition. Since you interview uh, so many people in, in, in person, have you taken advantage of that and shared the work with any of them? Oh God. Yeah, I've, I have. I mean, this is the fantastic thing about it is that four and a half years ago, I had a, a very small group of really good, close photographer friends, some of whom are, you know, exceptionally good at what they do. Um, but fundamentally i didn't really have much of a of a of a network you know a peer peer network and now i just know a lot of people and um consider them to be friends in many cases and so i do have access to uh, a huge number of uh, differing opinions the, the downside of that is that everyone's got an opinion as you know <laughs> and although a great deal of value can be derived from hearing them if you hear enough too many of them, then ultimately they it kind of it just becomes a sort of cacophony of of differing views, really. And I'm not sure that it necessarily gets you anywhere. It's good to have your own ideas, obviously. And if you are the one who's making the work, then ultimately, you know, it has to be about what you decide. But I have spoken to a number of people, and I, I I've got all sorts of um, things which I need to sort of make notes about and, and collate. But yeah, I've asked a number of people. And I, in fact, I took the book dummy to a place called Chico Hot Springs in Montana, where my uh, podcast sponsor, the Charcoal Book Club, they run a portfolio review. Um, now, this was exactly a year ago. I will be going again next month. But there, I because I wanted to put myself very much in the same position as the people who were there to have their work reviewed. I decided that, you know, it would be good as a kind of podcast uh, narrative to, to get some, some feedback on the book dummy. So in a way it was a, a kind of win-win because on the one hand, I wanted to, like I say, explore that as a way to give an idea of what it feels like to put yourself in that vulnerable position and have people sort of essentially assess your work but at the same time, I got my, I got some interesting and useful opinions from people who um, I respect. So, yeah, that was the kind of plan there. You know, I think for both of those reasons, it worked out quite well. But um, wh whether I'll actually remember what half those people said or whether I'll take any of it on board or not, I'd, I'd, it remains to be seen. Obviously, when you have a project like that, you want it to be good, if possible. You know, that's that's really the bottom line um i mean you want it to be excellent if 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 possible but you know i'd, I'd settle for good yeah. you know that's the aim so onwards and upwards and hopefully i'll end up with something that i'm at least you know pleased enough with that i can say yeah that's that's good <laughs> i'll i'll start doing something else now well i look forward to seeing that because i like when i look at your your images on your on your website i really like your eye i really like the way you see things uh, whether it's, you know, the you stuff so you're doing on the street or the stuff that you're doing with your son. Mm. Yeah, I really love how you how you frame things and how you use uh, color. So it'll be interesting to see how how you apply that to a particular 
uh, a particular project because I think that it's only yeah. through people working on a singular project for a short or a long period of time that you really, really get a sense of who they are as a photographer mm. and as an artist and even as a, as, as a person, because if you're just in pursuit of the singular image all the time, there's no really a good way of crystallizing a voice. So um, mm. it's good to see that you're, you're, you're moving forward beyond simply making the photographs. Yeah. And it's interesting you should say that because one of the observations that has been made about this project is that there's not enough of me in it in a way and that it feels like, I'm a bit removed from it in a sense that mm -hmm. I'm somehow, yeah, too objective. And I find that a very interesting observation. And I think um, there's probably quite a lot to be said about that. So in a way, I think now I've got to sort of see what I've done and then have a think and, and, and figure out a way to you know, add some images that have a bit more of me in them, if, if you see what I mean. I mean, I don't oh, even no. know myself quite quite what that means, but... I've kind of got a vague idea. I completely get it because considering, you know, the kind of mindset we've always had about ourselves, it's no surprise that we're reluctant to put ourselves in our photographs, but it's the very thing yeah. that makes it, that creates that level of intimacy. You know, yes. some of the personal projects exactly. that I'm working on right now are, are, are really more reflective of me, my life history than anything else I've done. And the response that I've yeah. gotten to it has been stronger than anything else that I've done. So I'm even with this third project that I'm just starting. Uh, that's probably the most personal thing I've I'll ever have done to date. But I think it's it's partly because I've gotten more comfortable in my own skin that I'm willing to go there. I think, and I think anytime before, let's say the last five or six years, I would have always had that sort of distant, objective point of view in all the work just because I didn't right. feel comfortable with putting any any of myself in there. But it's the very thing that I admire about some of the people whose work I do uh, love is that their willingness to be able to do that. It's not just about that they're able to make amazing photographs, but that they're able to leverage who they are as a person in their, in their work, which is not an easy thing to do. Mm, no, absolutely. Actually, I'm so glad that you've said that because... I was um, pondering about um, the question I know that's going to be coming and, you know, we, we can, we can sort of get to it when we get to it. But um, I was thinking about, you know, what photographer to recommend and it would be so appropriate now having heard you say what you just said for me to uh, go with the, the person I was going to go with. So I won't spoil the surprise if we we shall continue no, for now. Let's, and then I'll, I'll well, let's, go. let's go. It's, it's around that time right. anyway. Okay. All right. So, you know so, so it's like, uh, I know, I know I'm allowed to have someone, you know, who's I've liked for a long time. So, but the person that comes to mind when you, t when we talk about this, this stuff is, is Anders Peterson, um, who I spoke to for the podcast quite recently. And, you know, I've obviously been aware of his work for many years and, and I knew that, you know, I liked it a lot, but when I really started looking at it carefully in preparation for our, the chat I had with him, I realized just how much it's the kind of photography that I love because it's really all about that stuff that you were just talking about. You know, he, he puts himself into it and it's really all about emotion and it's about this kind of visceral impact that, that I look for really. And, and, you know, I, I, you know, I want a picture to make me cry or make me laugh or, 
or, or, or, you know, sort of inspire a, a very kind of basic emotional response. And I think photography is subject to fashion like everything else, isn't it? And I think there seems to be uh, in recent years um, a fashion for a much more kind of forensic, slightly kind of disengaged, dispassionate kind of approach for a lot of people anyway. And of course, there's room for everything. That's the beautiful thing about photography. It's such a broad church, isn't it? But the thing that really turns me on is is the opposite to that, is stuff that just makes me feel emotionally uh, very engaged with it. And so Anders Peterson, for me, always achieves that. And it's all him, really. As he said, you know, this 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 idea of the pictures having this longing in them or, or, or this idea of longing, either that of the photographer or of the subject. And you can see that in his, in his work. And I, I certainly do. So there you go. I'm going to go with Anders. Well, thank you for that, man. And thank you for making time for me. Uh, really enjoyed uh, speaking with you again. So it was great fun. Uh, it's an absolute uh, honor. And um, I thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. It's uh it's pretty incredible. And thank you f- for what you've been doing for all these years, man, because like I say, you gen- genuinely did directly have a really major influence on my decision to, to do a small voice. So, you know, maybe without the candy frame, there'd be no small voice, you know, and I hope well, we've got a lot of um, listeners in common. I suspect we have. I think we do. If not, we will be. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Thanks to Ben for joining us. Find out more about him and his podcast by visiting bensmithphoto.com. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews have led people to take a chance on our show and allowed us to grow. Along with my recent book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, I just released my latest ebook, Nine Pictures, Nine Stories, Volume 2. The first one got a wonderful response, and I'm back with a follow-up, where I discuss the stories behind nine images that I created last year. It's only $8, and your purchase is another way you can support the show. Purchase that and any of my previously published ebooks by visiting the website. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and our mailing list. On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated with all TCF events, including workshops, and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or donating through PayPal. Thanks to Jeffrey Nissler, Creative Chaos, Randy Lee, and Robert B. Klontz for their recent contributions. It means so much to me. And if you found that you can't find every episode of the show, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.